It's been a while, hasn't it, Ross? Yeah, it's cracking. <laughs> I, I, did, I couldn't find out your name for a while, so I was going to Max. Oh, that Robert De Niro guy. <laughs> <laughs> the what? I actually, you know what? You know what? I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Robert De Niro guy. It took, it took us a while to figure out your name. I just thought we confessed the truth. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another Sunday Roast. Let's start with Zoe. Zoe, can you tell us a bit about yourself for anyone who is new to the show? Hi, Max. Hi, Alex. And hi, everybody watching Sunday Roast. Yeah, I've been on a couple of times before. Very pleased to be invited back. I'm a migrants' rights campaigner, generalised loudmouth and busybody around town. And I am here in very high spirits because of the brilliant news about the uh, Rwanda judgment that found that it would be unlawful to send refugees to Rwanda. So looking forward to speaking about that. Yay. And Matt, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Matt Johnston. I host and uh, record a show called The Interesting Times on YouTube. It is my third time on the Sunday Roast. I'm a Sunday Roast virgin, so please be gentle with me. We will try. And my wonderful co-host, Alex, for anyone who's new to their show. Hi, I'm Alex, also known as Political X. I'm a historian and I all-round busybody. I like that expression. <laughs> all-round political busybody. And my wonderful co-host, Max. Hi, guys. My name is Max. I run the Robespierre channel and I co-host this podcast with Alex. Uh, let's begin with uh, Rwanda, perhaps. Uh, Zoe, can you tell us, can you fill us in on what's happening? We had a really momentous judgment. Um, on uh, the legality of the the government's vile scheme to send people, refugees, to Rwanda. The Court of Appeal, so the hearing in the High Court of about a year ago now, has been overturned by the Court of Appeal. Um, they found that it is unlawful to send people to Rwanda on the basis that Rwanda is not a safe country for refugees. Um, and that's because the Rwandan asylum system doesn't function in a way that can protect people. And there's a real risk that people will be sent back again. So from Rwanda, if they're refused asylum by the Rwandan system, sent back to places where they would be at real risk of persecution and harm. And so the UK is not allowed to send anyone there. Um, so it's just it's, it's very unusual for a court to... Um, challenge the government policy in such a way. Um, I wasn't expecting it, if I'm honest. I was expecting it to go the same way as it had um, in, in the High Court. So it's it's just a wonderful day to celebrate, you know, a, a real blow against the government's cruel plans, a day of relief for so many of the asylum seekers who are currently trapped in disgraceful conditions in inadequate institutional accommodation across the country who will feel like they have a chance, uh, you know, a reason to hope that this country might welcome them after all, instead of banishing them to some country that they may never even have heard to, that they have no connection to. So it's a really great day. Of course, the government will appeal, but I'm not focusing on that today. <laughs> Just the immediate victory. Oh, well, we have over the last few years, definitely. For the last two weeks, though, it's like the good guys are finally coming back in. It's like, it's like that final payoff where you see Captain America lift lift up the hammer and kick the living crap out of the evil. Um, Matt, what are your what are your thoughts on this? You know, I don't want to be Mister Sort of Rain on the Parade guy, but as you mentioned, there's a super, they're going to already talking about taking it to the Supreme Court and stuff. Um, what what do you think their chances are of succeeding with that? Well. It's really hard to say. Um, yeah. The the judgment here wasn't unanimous. So two out of three judges said that it wasn't safe to send people to Rwanda. One of them said that it was. But what was contained in those judgments, uh, the ones that were on our side, was actually quite strong. So, you know, they, they examined the Rwandan asylum system quite carefully and they found things like, so for there is a 100% rejection rate in the Rwandan asylum system for people from Yemen, Syria, and Afghanistan. That's pretty difficult to claim that it's therefore a safe and well-functioning asylum system. Yeah. So what's been really amazing is watching uh, Tory commentators respond to this saying, well, we, we need to improve, obviously, the Rwandan asylum system. Of course, not our own. That would that would be mad. What about sovereignty? Um, <laughs> yeah. no, well, Rwandan sovereignty doesn't seem to 
um, matter very much in this calculation, or at least it can can have a price put on it quite clearly. Um, and that price came out also uh, last week. It turns out that it will cost uh, £170,000 per individual that we send to Rwanda. That's the government's own estimate of the cost. So wouldn't it be cheaper order, just to process the claims? Significantly much cheaper. Yes, even again, by the government's own figure, it would be significantly much cheaper to just process the claims. And that, of course, would also result in saving the money that we're spending on housing asylum seekers for the long term because we don't process their claims. So they're trapped in the system. Um, so there's huge money to be saved. I mean, not not that I think that should be the primary thing that we focus on, because really, I mean, we pay taxes in this country. We're supposed to get in return a, a functioning country. And there's very little evidence of that. And the government has invested in all the wrong things. And that's just another example of it within the asylum system that is well, I mean, to say crumbling would be wrong. It has crumbled. It's gone now. But I think it is right that our tax taxes should pay for a system that receives people in dignity, that treats them like human beings, and that offers protection and the chance to build a new life to people who have fled persecution. And I think actually most of the country is pretty much on board with that. We've just been poisoned through this debate um, by um, believing in this this false narrative of deterrence. I mean, even if the Rwanda scheme were to be declared lawful in the court this week instead of being declared unlawful, um, the government would be in a bit of a bind because they'd have to then demonstrate that it's not going to stop people from coming here. And and that's that's what all the evidence tells us. And they, they'll throw around examples. They'll, they'll say that Australia managed to stop people from coming. Well, that's not actually true. Australia still receives thousands and thousands of asylum applications every year. Um, and, and their offshore processing um, has finally come to an end this this week. Another piece of great news that happened this week. Well, actually, that's not, that's not quite true. But Nauru, the last person has been taken off the detention centers in Nauru and resettled back to Australia. Um, so, so their offshoring was an absolute disaster. Um, there are still some of some people held in Papua New Guinea, but to be clear, nobody's been sent to an offshore detention center in Australia. Sorry, I'm I'm off on this one now because well, it, well, they it, are, it they are connected. Got rid of the problem of asylum seekers um, by by setting up these awful offshore prisons in Nauru and Papua New Guinea, and it isn't true. Um, and and nobody's been sent offshore to any of these camps since 2014 from Australia, and bit by bit. The, the people who are held there in horrific conditions. Médecins Sans Frontières described the conditions there as the worst um, trauma that they had ever seen in any population around the world. In wow. Médecins Sans Frontières, um, they see some trauma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cases of sexual abuse and exploitation of children as young as six years old in these camps, like really, truly horrifying conditions. And bit by bit, the people have been have had to be relocated from those camps again and some of them have gone to other countries like Canada has taken some of them in but some of them have had to be sent back to Australia and in the meantime asylum seekers there are still people seeking asylum in Australia so you know it's presented as somehow being the fix that Australia somehow cracked the nut and now we're just copying that it didn't fix anything in Australia it was a disaster for human rights a disaster for innocent people who were deeply deeply harmed by it it hasn't stopped people needing to find safety in places like Australia and it won't do that here and really ultimately it's not a question of whether it's legal or not to send people to Rwanda it's a question that we all know perfectly well the answer to is is it morally right to send people to Rwanda mm -hmm. and it is not yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, I didn't realise, because as you say, the Australia thing is always kind of brought forward as, well, it worked there, it's going to work here. I didn't realise uh, until you explained it quite eloquently that that was the case, and you think that that would be um, reported on a bit more in this country, you know, but I suppose it's the case it doesn't fit people's narrative. It's See, just... Their willingness to lie, because there's an mm. ex-minister from the Australian government who's responsible for this scheme. Who's Tony Abbott. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> but he's advising the current government. He's been speaking in the media saying, yeah, yeah, it was great. It solved it. I mean, all the evidence, you know, it's just happy to lie, just straightforward lies. And I mean, I don't know why I'm still surprised about that. We're on a, uh, a show where, you know, surely we know that that's normal. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's, it's nice. It's nice. I, I think it's good in a way that people can still be shocked by this thing. It still seems to say that we haven't quite hit bottom yet. We've still got a little bit of a way to go. Each time you sit here and think, 
we're going to hit bottom any minute now and then no we're not quite um have you seen reform there's no reason why you would but i just stumbled across across it on twitter um the reform party's six point manifesto of how they would deal with um reform it is reform yeah, i think yeah, reform. Yes, and, yeah oh you're back oh great um and <laughs> i think number three is they would man all the immigration centers with what they call believers <laughs> and how how you know how frightening is that really as is, it, a concept? Is, it with, is it with people whose knuckles actually touch the floor or not <laughs> that one of the requirements you have to wonder yeah one one single eyebrow across the front like that um that's scary though yeah yeah the anti-democratic nature of sort of a totalitarian state only the true believers maybe in the civil service i mean that's actually genuinely a scary proposition the blob yeah can, can, can i ask a question do, do you think um politically the the conservatives actually want to deport people or it's just red meat for the base uh well there are two ways of looking at this one is that they really do want to deport one plane load of people um manage to just do whatever they can to get that and, and as close to the election as possible and say you see we are doing something or and i think they're sort of hedging on what either of these will work for us sort of thing is of course that it is about the fight not the flight um and right now you can see it you know there, there's been plenty of tory commentators coming out since since this judgment already saying um well, the truth is we have to question our membership of the European Convention on Human Rights, because ultimately, while this was a British Court of Appeal decision, it was based on British law, the Human Rights Act. It ultimately defers to Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a, a absolute ban on exposing people to a risk of torture, um, death and inhuman treatment, inhuman and degrading treatment. And the risk is, as I said, that if, if we send people to Rwanda, then they may send people back again. And that that chain would make us responsible and therefore it's totally illegal under that convention. And, and I think that it, it does suit the Tories to have the courts stop this from happening. Because as I say, if, if they were allowed to do it, then it would be made clear that it wouldn't be a deterrent and it wouldn't work and they wouldn't be able to send enough people there for it to work. Um, and it would be an enormous disaster, an unthinkable uh, disaster. Um, and so it's almost better for them to be able to go into the next election and say, look, we were stopped by this convention, vote for us, and we'll do Brexit Mark II, Electric Boogaloo, and take us out of the European Convention on Human Rights as well. Um, and otherwise, they've got nothing really to say at the next election. What are they going to do? More of this? This is terrible. Everybody agrees this is terrible. Mm, mm. Like the never-ending story. It's just <laughs> never-ending Tory. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'd say there's a couple of things israel tried it and it failed which is interesting uh i think that ended 10 years ago and they were like it didn't work people just left because they didn't want to be there i think that was in the judgment as well if i remember i think that one of the judges referenced that as a reason the israeli agreement just like our agreement Rwanda's supposed to take care of these people but Rwanda did not um and so the judge said well look they didn't do it then what what makes you think they're trustworthy now and the Nazis had the Madagascar plan, which was to deport people they didn't like onto the island of Madagascar. So you're going, so you keep telling us you've got nothing similar to the 1930s, but you're literally stripping out policies from the 1930s. And then the other thing, which is definitely not being reported about as much as I'd like, is the fact that the, the Rwandan government has been accused by the UN of supporting guerrilla fighters in the Congo. So you're going... So you want to pay 169000 per person to go over to the Congo and you think that's a fair deal? I mean, I'm going, so the Rwandan government, Rwandan government, I go, okay, so I'll take, let's, let's be nice. I'll take 20K and I'll shunt the rest of the money into my project to destabilize the Congo. It's not mm. rocket science. Haven't they spent, is it 170 million already? Press release to say this is happening. Since then, we've... Um, we've agreed to pay this 170,000 per person, 169,000 per person. Um, and that obviously doesn't take into account the amount that we have to spend on the long term, because part of the agreement is that each of those individuals will then be supported in Rwanda of our dime. And 
obviously that might need, they may have complex need, they may have um, serious mental health um, trauma to deal with, they may need uh, serious counselling, they may need re rehabilitation from torture, they may be, you know, and because nobody is left out of this so they may be disabled they may be pregnant they may be children and we're going to have to pay for all of their support in rwanda um it, under this deal that then brings in what we were talking about last week that triggered me slightly which is the 154 missing children some of the claims coming out from the social services and some of the carers that were involved in those 154 missing children have been that they were scared by the rwandan policy so that's part of it. But again, not being brought up that much. But then the other thing is, if I'm a smuggler, I mean, so if you're a refugee and you're fleeing, let's say across Europe, let's say you've, you've managed to get through the whole of Europe, where on earth are you going to get wind of the idea? And your aim is to get to the UK. You've got family over there. You've got colonial ties with the UK because of past history. How is the Rwanda policy going to put you off? How are you even going to hear about it? Yeah. So you gotta get there. And the smugglers are just gonna go, yeah, load nonsense. Just get on the boat. Yeah. yeah. So I don't and understand how that. it's meant to be a deterrent. They're like trying to scare people by telling send it. I mean, there's the juxtaposition in itself. They're gonna send them to a nice country as a punishment mm. and then financially pay for them. <laughs> I mean, and the, the other side yes. of it, the other side of it, of course, is that when people are in the country, say somebody who's been trafficked to the country, who's being held in conditions of slavery, maybe being exploited on cannabis farms or maybe being exploited in the sex industry or in other ways, they, they can hold that over them now as coercion. They can say very clearly because the, the, the legislation going through parliament right now denies these people protection not just as refugees, but also as victims of trafficking. So they can say very clearly, this government, if you go and ask for help, if you escape from under my my slavery conditions that I'm holding you in, I, this government is going to do worse to you than I ever could. They're going to lock you up for an indefinite period of time and then try to deport you to Rwanda. Um, so it will be used as an element of control over people once they're here in the UK. And as you say, Alex, those kids who disappeared from the hotels, I mean, they've clearly been trafficked into horrific situations, but more and more people will disappear into the system once they realize that there is no prospect of them gaining protection in the UK um, mm. and that they're at risk of just being held in detention and then potentially sent to Rwanda. Well, they're going to disappear and be, again, at the mercy of the worst people in our society, the people who exploit people, the people who abuse people, and they will have no recourse to the support that they should have if they went to the authorities, because as soon as they go to the authorities, oh, how did you come here? Mm. Oh, you're, you came here on a boat, right you're detained, you're sent to Rwanda. So they have no escape then from, from that criminality. It's just going to be a massive boon for all the people who would exploit people in our society. Zoe, can I ask a question? Yeah, like the Tory party. Zoe, can I ask a question about, um, it's looking likely that Labour are going to win the next election. Is there, from what you're hearing, is there anything positive um, going forward under a Labour government, do you think that they're go like in, when it comes to processing claims? Do you think that they're going to be able to bring it down to a reasonable level? And do you think they're the anything that you've heard so far from politicians or people within the Labour Party that's actually positive? Well, so I've been extremely disappointed with Labour's narrative and Labour's framing on this at various points. However, I would say that while I have no doubt that if a Labour government gets in, I will, on day two, start complaining about the myriad failures and terrible abuses that will be taking place in their, the asylum system they run. But they will be running an asylum system. It appears that they will be running an asylum system. They will be processing people's claims when they arrive, and they will then be giving granting protection to refugees here in the UK, which is what we must do. That is point number one. And, and what this this government that we have at the moment and the Tories is doing is throwing that out the window. Now, if you don't have that, if you if you say we won't protect refugees at all, then you have nothing, nothing at all. You have absolute disaster for all of the people that I work with and that I, I've spent my career working with. 
as long as you have a system in place, you're just so many streets ahead in terms of, you know, doing your job as a government. As long as Labour, and, and thus far Labour does seem committed to running an asylum system, we're already doing so much better. Then after that, yeah, I mean, I, I will I will be among many people trying to pressure them to run a very welcoming, very humane asylum system. But if they run an asylum system at all, we're in such a bad place. We're in such a bad place that that would actually be a huge improvement. Be interesting to oh. see whether or not it, they actually set up a processing centre in France, because then, in theory, you'll knock out the smugglers because you'll be offering a, a safe refuge in. Uh, potential free access into the UK. Although the the Tory response so far ha to that has been, well, you're just going to encourage people to come in. It's like it, yeah. it, it creates a pull factor. I'll Does tell the... you what encourages people to come in. I mean, <laughs> I mean, probably this room that I'm sitting in right now, where it's safe, it's warm. It's maybe actually a bit too warm, but it's not so much too warm that I can't live here or grow crops. It's got running water just about for the time being. Uh, uh, it's it's you know it's got a rule of law as we've seen this week with the judgment you know even the government is held to certain standards of human rights protections I am not a danger of persecution for my sexuality for my gender for my um, religious uh, beliefs for any of that that that's that's what attracts people to this country that's that's mm -hmm. what's bringing people here you won't get rid of that and also as we've already mentioned you know colonialism these bloody immigrants they come over here they, they they're up to no good right i hate these bloody immigrants they need to go back to where they came from but why do you hate them so much i hate i'll tell you why i hate them I'll tell you why right because they're not even trying to be british that's why they don't even try to be british right they come here they bring their own bloody culture right they bring their own food speak their own bloody languages try to take over the whole bloody place that sounds british to me we were over there remember we were over there for decades and decades you know what's really interesting is that you know who comes you you know where most of the uh refugees from congo we were talking about rwanda creating refugees from congo most of them do you know where they go in europe belgium you know why ah. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> isn't it yeah and the algerians they they go to france and uh oh. yeah and 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 most of the time, people go to the places where they have connections, where they speak the language, where they have people from their community living, and where it's bloody well safe and there's opportunity. None of that we can get rid of through no matter what cruel policy or what generous policy. None of that is relevant whatsoever. We treat people terribly or we treat people well, people move. And people go to where it makes sense for them to go. And for some people, that's the UK. And we can't change it. Well, uh, you know, uh, Zoe's on this, obviously, um, which is brilliant. Um, does it frustrate you? I must frustrate you to have people like, I saw Robert Jenrick on Question Time a few months ago. And he was sat there saying that, uh, you know, uh, refugees should seek refuge in the first safe country they come to. And I thought, if you, as an immigration minister, is still you know, rattling out this nonsense, then what hope for the rest of us, really? Yeah, no, well, it's again, those straight up lies. I mean, they know that's not the law. Mm. Um, but they also know that that's, it sounds reasonable, right? If you, if you say it off the, and I think that it, it, it feeds into uh, actually sort of um, unconscious racism. We don't think that people who have fled from that kind of um, situation that people who have lived in those kind of countries really deserve a choice, right? Mm, they should mm. be grateful for literally the next breath they take. Um, and if that but breath also, is not interrupted but it's, by a bomb... Yeah, sorry, but it's also interesting they don't apply to Ukrainians. No, of course not. Ukrainians that. go yeah, to yeah. Poland or to yeah. Hong Kong. Because Ukrainians are considered to be human enough to be entitled to wish to come to the UK, whether that's to join family members, whether that's because they know somebody else in the UK, whether that's because they've learned some English, whatever reason it is, we understand that Ukrainians, once they fled from Ukraine, may not all want to stay in Poland or Moldova. And some of them may wish to move on because, and they are they are given license to have those desires about their lives, because it's their lives, their whole lives, you know? This is their entire future. I just, I know I've been talking a lot, but I do just want to, no, no. there's one story, you know, there's been this horrific boat tragedy in the Mediterranean uh, yeah. last week where, you know, probably about 600 people or more died in one go. I mean, absolutely just beyond words. And, and 
you know, there was one one guy on that boat, one of the few people whose stories I've actually heard. His name was Tayyar Khaled. And he 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 was somebody he was one of those good refugees. So he he escaped from the war in Syria with his wife 10 years ago. And he went to the next, the first safe country, Jordan. And he lived for the last 10 years in a Jordanian refugee camp, um, waiting, hoping that he would be granted what they call a durable solution, which means resettlement to a, a country of safety, the possibility to actually, you know, work, integrate, you know, just rebuild a life. For 10 years, they waited. During that time, they had kids. Their youngest kid, four years old, born in the refugee camp, diagnosed with leukemia. And it was when his son was diagnosed with leukemia, his four-year-old son, that's when he decided that he couldn't keep waiting for who knows how much longer for some benevolent hand to come down and take him. And he took his agency into his own hands and said, I have to make my way to Europe. I have to be able to send money back so that he can get the treatment that he needs. I think we can all understand that he had to do that. He had to. We weren't going to give him another way to get here. And that's that's what it actually means. When people say, oh, they should stay in the first safe country, they actually mean stay in a camp in the desert in Jordan for the rest of your life. And if mm. your child gets mm. sick, there's nothing you can do. Because if if he had made it across on that boat, we would say he's sent to Rwanda. Yeah, we would. It, it's inter- it, I'll, just, I'll just add on a final note before we switch topic. You're all aware that Nigel Farage's family were Huguenots from France. <laughs> And they fled from persecution over to the UK. So you're going, that's before passports. Did they seek permission to come over before they arrived? Center goes straight for the kill. Oh, originally we were persecuted Protestants from France who who fled there you go who fled in fear of our lives and were, and were welcomed in by England no ako ne bjaha imenno emigrantite i horata koji se idvali za da oblagorodjava tazi ostrovna država ženite pri vas ošte stiha da imat pospretna timustacija od mažete zašto se ženite prvi bratovčeri but it's okay for Nigel's family it's okay for Suella's family it's not too late for Nigel is it to be sent back. I don't know <laughs> surely not it's, he's such a bizarre character. I mean, what is it? A, I think a Spanish wife, a German wife, German, German wife. German, yeah. That must have made an interesting conversation after Brexit, wasn't it? You know. <laughs> There's a clip of Jacob Rees Mogg being confronted by a man whose wife was German, and he told her that he voted for Brexit. I and she very naively divorced. voted to 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 leave, and um, my wife casually asked me one evening what my voting decision was and I'll put it into a very succinct situation. I told her what I did and it was like lighting the blue touch paper and standing back. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone who felt so devastatingly betrayed, upset, let down. And um, we've got two daughters, 15 and 18 at the moment. And as far as I'm concerned, that was the end of a very successful marriage. Do you regret the way you voted? I regret it so much. It, uh, it breaks my heart talking about it. Jacob. Um, well, the, the story you tell is incredibly sad mm. and heart-rending for you. She uh, immediately divorced him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love her. And Mod sat there just going, <laughs> no, he doesn't know what to say. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that Farage isn't, doesn't actually hate Europe. He just pretends to. Yeah, he, right. saw, he saw it's a grift, isn't it? Yeah. He saw a, an opportunity to make a career for himself. But I mm. don't think he believes in anything. To keep it going. To keep it going, of course. Yeah. <laughs> On the gravy train. Yeah, yeah. He was European pension, didn't he? Yeah, we're, we're going to have to fight this in a couple of years all over again. And then probably in a few years after then. Then one more time and I'll be ready to retire. I mean, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what do you think of what do you think of the Conservative Party's chances of well, do you think they'll even make the next election at this Yeah, point? that's the question, is it? Thank you. Um well I I noticed something the other day where on question um Prime Minister's questions. Just how um 
lackluster uh, Rishi Sunak appears now, how nervous he appears when he stands up and starts talking. And, and I saw Keir Starmer on one side getting up and pacing him with these lines after lines after points. And, the, you know, his front bench behind him were all pointing, all cheering, all, all um, clapping. And on the other side, they're all just, you know, like, remember we went to that place in Ikea, um, the Ikea base. They all had the same sort of look, including this one woman who looked genuinely, she looked like she was going to put her hand, her fist in her mouth, but she ended up doing this. She looked at him like, and then just sat there and did that, just watching him. But... Oliver Dowden, there's a point where he's talking and Oliver Dowden and Penny Morden are just nattering amongst themselves. It's like he's not even saying anything. So I wonder, because he, he looks really nervous as well, and I wonder if somebody said something to him. Do you think any of the policies that they're putting forward, that, you know, he's got those five policies, I think the four of them look unattainable. We should talk about one, those more. <laughs> one, one looks like waiting times has gone down. That's from the NHS itself. But the rest, I mean, do you think they're at the there's a potential for him to do anything with any of that or no uh, i mean for a start the stopping the small boat thing is we've already kind of covered that and it's inhumane anyway but besides that it's kind of you're not going to do it you might as well say i'm going to stop everybody leaving their front door i mean what is the french coastline like 200 miles or something 150 miles i don't know but can, can i just come in for a second yeah and yeah. like just just to ask you matt like you know when they say about we're going to stop the boats when he was, when I think it was Suella Braveman who was pushed a little bit on it, and she didn't say, "Well, we're not going to stop them to zero. We're going to slow them down or something." And like, so they, they kept moving the moving the goalpost and re re uh, rehashing the same the same argument in a different ways. Not like, not so punchy, is it? Slow the no. boats. <laughs> then you're like, are, are you going to slow them so they don't come over here so quickly? Slow the slow the not so many boats. Yeah, it's not quite so but, catchy. But stop the boats doesn't mean zero. So yeah. Right. He didn't specify how much. Do you think that the, the sewer system is some sort of crazy plan of theirs to the swamp <laughs> the ocean so full of crap they can't actually get across? For months. That's the answer. Oh, no, it's not the answer. They're just walking across. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I think it's quagmire. Yeah. As, as, we, as we've already mentioned, his five um, pledges aren't, you know, look like he's going to fail on just about at least four of them. Um, the What's it? Inflation. Yeah, inflation half, is going to inflation. sort of half inflation. That's now going up. A recession might bring that down, but that's not the best way to do it. <laughs> but but as a solution, I mean, you're literally saying you've got to destroy the economy <laughs> to achieve your goal. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Let's hope for that recession. It's all we can hope for. That would also destroy the second one, which is get the economy growing. Okay, so he's going to have inflation and grow the economy at the same time. But the yeah. only way to have inflation is to is to engineer a recession. But then you're yes. not going to grow the economy. Or unless yeah. you talk about growing the economy by very, very little. <laughs> well, that's the ambiguity, isn't it? He could just say, oh, look, 0.1% of growth. With, see? This is, I mean, I got, I got a little bit of commentary about, because I did a picture of it and said, well, he's failed on four and said the weighing lists are down. And I got pushback from that from people going oh that's not true or in the long term but i'm like he said he'd do it and it's done i can't you know as much i mean as much as i dislike the tories i don't think i actually need to exaggerate their failings because because it's horrific so when, when they talk about the fastest nation in the g7 they say like on a wednesday afternoon you know sometime in july 2022 that's when they like they they cherry pick the data a lot from four to 401 in the morning <laughs> <laughs> Can, Matt, what about the NHS waiting list? Do you think they're going to come down? Um, I can't see how, because, of course, it's one of those things where the Tories keep saying things like, um, we're throwing more and more money at it. We're putting more money in than any Labour government. I'm, I'm sitting there going, well, how? Because we've already seen, obviously, with the uh, doctors are going on strike, the nurses have been on strike. So you kind of you got to wonder how any of this is going to be accomplished, really. Just like, what are they spending the money on? We know what they're spending the money on. They've been spending it on um, crappy PPE contracts, you know, and things like that. So I, well, I would give my right arm for a journalist to ask them whenever they raise a thing about you know cost of living or uh, support for the banks or support for mortgages, support for whatever. I mm. love a journalist to ask: Is it enough? Just to ask that question, is it enough? So they say, we're spending £150 million on schools. 
is it enough? They have to answer yes or no, and, and obviously you'd have them caught. So and the thing is, that's their job. Their job is to spend money on things like schools and health. That's kind of what they're there for. That's what we pay our taxes for. Well, those of us that pay taxes. Um, I don't. I think he was extremely unambitious with those targets, and he's not going to hit a lot of them. It, you know, it's frustrating because I really don't think that it matters, even if he like nominally hit them. And I mean, I mean, the stop the boats one maybe is an exception here, but I, I think we're done with them. We're done with them. Now, if he achieved them, I, d I don't think it would be enough. You know, halving inflation, they did an interesting study on that. And people think halving inflation means prices will go down. Yeah. You know, he's not going to bring prices down. Prices are going to keep going up um, for the foreseeable future. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure all of us have experienced it. It's already really actually quite difficult to continue mm. doing your weekly shop. Um, so... I think they've lost it no matter what. And what's really frustrating about that is that they're continuing to pass this incredibly harmful legislation at a time when the entire country is like, get out. And we, we're done with this. And, and you know, I, I don't have a huge amount of enthusiasm for Labour at the moment, but it just the, the, the need we have for a general election, get these guys out. And they're just going to trundle along for another, what, 12, 15 months? I mean... One prediction is an election this autumn. This autumn. Awesome. But really... Well, here's the thing, because I heard soon, and I remember thinking, when he spoke to Laura Coonsberg, I remember thinking, that's a strange thing to say. He says, judge me on it in, and I thought he's going to say in a year, in 14 months' time. He said, judge me on it in six months' time, in a nine months' time, in a year. And I thought, how can we judge you on it in six months' time? Mm. Unless they do call the general election, a snap general election. Well, that'd be interesting. Give us an election, man. Just just, <laughs> just to vote them out. Just to vote them out. Um, I'm I'm terrible because I'm always such a negative campaigner. I'm always just just get them out. I'm not particularly enthused by any politician, to be honest. But hmm. this lot have got to go. The the Greens and the rejoining EU party are the ones that are the promising. I'm sad that Caroline Lucas has said she's going to step down. I understand she's yeah. she's done her bit, but ugh, that's a real. So, we're still going to try and get her on here now that she's she's out of politics. That would be. That would be well, she'll be a fantastic really asset as a campaigner. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure there are people in the Green Party that'll step up. Yeah. There are some good yeah. folks in the Green Party there. But they, but they really need PR. They, um, that's the problem. You're not going to see a, um, a Green government without PR. No, yeah. no. And, and I think Brighton is one of those places as well that probably will vote in another Green MP. Fingers crossed. Touch wood. I think likely, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny seeing a little bit of a pushback on Twitter on that, but obviously... Twitter's its own sphere compared to the rest of it, but I think that is a secure seat. Be interesting. I think Bristol might have a chance of another Green MP coming in. I think I think mm. there's a chance of that, and that would be very interesting because it'll start changing the map. And it's just it, it's always a slow thing to build a party, no matter how much money you've got behind you. You know, most parties will take several years to actually start to win seats. What I think we should segue into, and I'm not going to do it nicely this time. It's not a nice segue um, on, on on multiple reasons, but. There was a really interesting piece in Byline Times, and I believe it's called La Scampa, which is an Italian newspaper. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of reading it, Max. I don't know yeah. what their orientation is. But they got a leaked document from the Italian secret services that implicated that the Bunga Bunga party, I don't know how that translates in Italian. I don't know if it's appropriate to translate that in, a, in, in from Italian to English. Um, Doesn't need a translation. Good. Uh... <laughs> Essentially, the, the, the Italian Secret Services have been following the Lebedevs for, for years by the looks of it. And they basically come to the conclusion that those parties that were being had were sex parties and that they were compromat, which means that they were KGB run. And the entire aim of those parties was to get influential people, potentially on camera, doing things that they shouldn't, or if their video footage is released to the public, will embarrass them massively. The Italian Secret Services have implicated Boris Johnson for attending and being part of those parties. Can, can I just ask... Real. I mean, not, it just sounds so like the plot of a cheesy political crime thriller. But can I can I just say before we get our guests to to respond to this as well? That there's nothing that Boris Johnson could do that would be embarrassing to him. It'd be like a hobgoblin watching a hobgoblin. <laughs> that would be the 
<laughs> Look at everyone's face. <laughs> Please stop talking, Alex. <laughs> like, change the topic. So we, we 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 can go into a little bit of detail about that in the fact that he he looks like he's being compromised. Hmm. And the the other interesting thing is, and it's not being brought up in the media. It's brought up in dispatches, but it's the scamper that released the the piece. It's been verified by an Italian MP. Our secret services had to keep an eye on an important European politician to understand whether there were reasons of concern. We have a confirmation uh, from three different sources from Italian intelligence that Boris Johnson was, was monitored by uh, our intelligence when he was in Italy in April uh, 2018. What we know uh, from our investigation uh, and from our sources is that Boris Johnson arrived in, in Umbria uh, without people from, from his security. Then Canada have come out and they've sanctioned the Lebedev family because they're saying you're compromised. Former British MI6 agents are saying we've been compromised. As an intelligence professional, I'm flabbergasted that a, a serving government minister would even consider spending a weekend in Italy in the castle that was owned by a former KGB officer who'd worked against the UK. The US Senate reports and the Mueller report have said we've been compromised, but the Tory government are saying we haven't and Boris hasn't. Thoughts, everyone? Can Max, <laughs> you haven't said much. You're in Italy. What are your thoughts? Is it possible for somebody to be removed from the House of Lords? Because Lebedev is a member of the House of Lords. So... It is possible. Does, is it something to do with they need to have served over a year in prison? We were talking about this on the other show that I do. Uh, if they serve over a year in prison, then they can be removed but no matter what. So that's not that's not a way of doing it. Um, but obviously, there's some something very dodgy going on. He has a, he, I believe he has a castle in where, where these bunga bunga parties took place. Was in um, yeah, I think it was in Perugia. Yeah. He has a cas a literal castle um, there, and he he hosts these parties obviously to get um you know compromising material on people um it'd be interesting to know if there are like so the thing about boris johnson is now he's gone so there's nothing you can really do about like you can't bring him down because he's he's no longer an mp and he's no longer prime mm. minister but i'd be interested to know if there are other politicians not just british politicians but other politicians who were attending these parties and how they have been compromised. Berlusconi, let's face it, he had very close ties with. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're aware that he had close. Well, ties. he was a fan, he was a fan of Putin, so. Shock. So that's interesting. I mean, if you actually look at the castle, there's a hill that overlooks it. I don't know if it's part of the facility, but basically, you go well. If the Secret Service know about this, they must have witnessed it, and it's interesting because that means that it's pretty difficult to look inside the castle itself. But there is a giant swimming pool next to the castle, which means that some of these antics were going on most likely outside. And there are probably video and photographs available somewhere within the Italian Secret Service. Yes, but we don't I mean, want to see them. We don't. <laughs> please, please, we'll take your word for it that they may well exist, but we don't need them splashed across the front pages of the newspaper. I don't want to give any spoilers on the dispatches because I'm sure people still want to watch it, but that makes sense on the dispatches thing because, of course, um, Holak actually turned around to Johnson and said, this guy's not, you know, red flagged under this person. And Johnson pushed him through. They even went to see Johnson's. Um, I think three times they tried to stop this guy's appointment to the House of Lords, didn't they? And he still got through. Because Boris pushed it through. He yeah. said, Prime Minister, I want this. I don't care. And you're going, why? Mm. Why, is it, why is it that you don't care? I mean, the, the, that, that leads on to the other thing that's the most interesting. In 2019, before the election, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, so she's, with, she's reading all these security issues around the globe and she is advocating for us to have the report before the election. I'm dumbfounded that this government won't release the report about Russian influence because every person who votes in this country deserves to see that report before your election happens. Uh, that should be a uh, absolute condition because there is no doubt. We know it in our country. We have seen it in Europe. We have seen it here. Uh, that Russia in particular uh, is determined to try to shape 
uh, the politics of Western democracies, uh, not to our benefit, but to theirs. Why do you think they're not releasing it? I don't know the answer to that. I would think a, a reporter like you and others should be absolutely relentless in trying to get to the bottom of it. Because, look, we know from even this current Trump administration's uh, intelligence uh, officials that the Russians are still in our electoral system. There's no doubt of the role that Russia played in our 2016 election and is continuing to play. There's a lot of evidence that Russia played in the Brexit election. Now, I'm not you know, in your country. I don't have a, uh, an, a say about any of that. But the fact that the current government won't release this report by your own government should raise some questions. And in 2019, November, so that Boris gets the report in October. In November, Boris is telling everyone there's no interference. Absolutely no evidence that I've ever seen of any uh, Russian in interference in UK democratic processes. The clip is on the 22nd of November, and Boris compares Russian interference to that of the Bermuda Triangle. Whether or not there was Russian interference or any kind of yeah. There is absolutely uh, no evidence that I know the case, then why to, not show, release it? To, show, to show any interference in the in any British electoral event. So I think it's about, it's not so much that he support. He, he doesn't, I don't think he supports Putin in the sense that it's political. He's like, they gave us money, great. Um, you know, if Kim Jong-un gave us money, would I'd say that's great as well. So it's, it's he sees himself as, as a sort of political leader. And I've said this before, if the Brexit vote had gone the other way, I think Boris Johnson would have presented himself as a European statesman, you know, leading in a sense um europe in, in in different challenges lazy of course but he would he he would <laughs> he would like to see himself in that light as i'm the you know the european leader but it went it went the other way but yeah no it does it sounds paradoxical the the idea that you know you have somebody who's receiving money from putin uh, indirectly maybe um or support getting money from uh, from dodgy individuals and then sending them to the House of Lords and playing tennis for, you know, the, wasn't it the foreign... And there's the case um, of the lady Lubov Chernukhin, Chernu, who paid £160,000 to have tennis, a game of tennis with you. Yeah. Can, well, Did can, that game actually take place? Can I, can I just make a point about uh, this whole um, anti... I, you're going to say good Russians I, I, and bad Russians. I know no, that. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I am, actually. I'm going to, but I was going to say back to you that, that this, this lady's husband was a minister of Vladimir Putin and was given an award by Vladimir Putin. So he was close to the regime. And you, as a party, were prepared to take £160,000 from her so that she could have a game of tennis with Boris Johnson. Well, Bit if, if, if there is evidence of uh, gross corruption in the way that gentleman you mentioned obtained his... Uh, wealth, or then, then it is then it is well within the. Uh, it is possible for our law enforcement agencies to deprive him, to deprive him of his wealth with an unexplained uh, wealth order. Maybe mm. she thought it was Boris Becker. I don't know, <laughs> but it, but it, it's a case of you know. Like, yeah, who the hell are you? People giving them it's for influence, and the Tories don't care where the money's coming from. It's like the money, you know. Don't blame the money. We don't care where the money comes from. So I, I think when it comes to Ukraine, yeah, it was definitely here's an opportunity for me to stamp my and it and it boosted his ego and it boosted his um, standing while he was um, while he was prime minister. It didn't save him, of course, because it was mm. inter it was domestic issues that brought him down. But um, on the on you know in Ukraine, he's extremely popular still. Just to echo what Max said, I think he saw which way the wind was blowing. And, you know, he's, he did it with Brexit as well. Like, you know, he just leapt at the right moment um, and took advantage of that for his own political game. How would you vote tomorrow if there was a referendum? I'd vote to stay in the single market. I'm in favour of the single market. I want to be part. I want us to be able to trade freely with our European friends and partners. Just when you said that about Brexit as well, it's like when he uh, was mayor of, wasn't it when he was, I don't know who was mayor of London or? I think he was the, mayor of London, the, yeah. Yeah, it was when um, they were going to build the, the third runway. He said, I'm going to stand out in front of the bulldozers. And just coming back lastly, the other aspect of this uh, regarding Heathrow, are you still planning to lie down in front of the bulldozers? Well, Nick, I don't see any much sign of any bulldozers yet. No, uh, but if you're a man who says you can deliver on promises, were the bulldozers to appear, 
Would you lie down in front of them? I, I, I would have to find some way of honouring that promise. I have to. It, 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 it might be technically difficult to achieve, but uh, yes. I mean, the, but the, as I said, the issue so you with would the, still you will find a technical issue, way to lie down in front the of the bulldozers with, if the work starts he, on the third one way. Let's let's wait and see when the bulldozers arrive, because the issue the issue with Heathrow, as you know, is that uh, there is still substantial doubt about the ability of the promoters to meet their obligations on uh, air quality and noise pollution. And then as soon as the, the day came, he was like legged it to, I think, to Hong Kong for some vote. Or a fridge. Or <laughs> yes. Sorry, Matt. No, no, just echo what you both were saying, really. It was his, he saw his Churchill moment, didn't he, really? He saw an opportunity to sort of get his name down in the history books, as it were. Uh, as you say, i I don't think he's particularly aligned with Putin in, a, in any regard, but when you look at the money that's flooded in, particularly to London, into UK and things like that, um, and apparently, and I read somewhere that there's, a, with the exception of Switzerland, we have most Russian gold or something like that. I, I saw a report on, on that business, so what there's still a fair bit of money going coming in there. Yeah. doesn't surprise me. I mean, a large amount of property... There's loads, of, there's loads of stuff in the Russia report uh, that does detail what's been flooding in here. And basically, Londongrad, as they, as a report called it, is a laundromat. Mm. So mm. you, you buy your property in London, you don't live in it, you don't rent it out, but you remortgage it, you get that money, which is now clean, and then you go and finance something else. Not that I know much else about that. <laughs> Something you'd like to share with us, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> it is quite easy to find out how a lot of these schemes work. Yeah, yeah. A YouTube is just an amazing tool. There's, there's no two ways about it. But you can, if you dig around, go, oh, how does that operate? You know, like there are there are properties in London that stand empty, but they have like 250 organizations or, or companies rather i should say registered to that address and and they're all just shell companies that are used in ways that i simply don't understand to launder money clearly um so there's been a, a, like clearly a really i mean a failure so absolute that it can hardly be considered accidental to mm. regulate this over several decades now i mean it goes before johnson's time as pm definitely this mm. is a long-term um, relationship that we've built and obviously when you build those relationships that money comes into the city there's then all the investment banks all the financial advisors all of there's, there's a huge industry that is then profiting from this movement of dirty money into clean money um, and it, it becomes very entrenched and actually there's there's enormous interests uh, that accumulate on that over time yes and they was looking at stopping that in fact weren't they they were looking well certainly looking into it um, I know they had a couple of investigations looking into that side of things. So in 2017, they passed legislation so that lawyers could had to check for money laundering. That's right. So That's they, right. Yeah. They have passed that. So you need to verify everything and be held culpable. So solicitors can't be part of that. But again, if you're purchasing a property and they have money abroad, there's nothing to, you know, that's that's the way they launder it. It's, mm. You buy a property, you let it sit there and you, you flog it or you have it as an unused address. And then you just say to the other people, okay, you want this address. Well, you need to pay me X amount of money. So that's also a potential one to do. The, the, the way they tend to do it is they'll set up companies. So you have one company that owns uh, the service. Then you have a company above that that owns the, the, that company, plus all the housing and everything else. Then above that company, so you've got two companies. Then they'll have a trust. And then what you do is you put the trust in different countries all the companies in different countries so you might have it based in the uk but then you'll put the second company in spain and then you'll put the trust in the canaries and wow. so imagine the resources you need to be part of the tax service to be able to research where that's all coming from mm. and of course the banks don't want to get involved mm. banks are like we don't want our reputation scarred that badly but they've also got legislation so to just try and stop this money laundering that's going on. But we all saw the Panama Papers. Yes. Yes. We all saw what Zaharway did, which was <laughs> very interesting. It's, it's kind of along those lines with Zaharway, wasn't it, really? He did the same sort of thing, you know, buying up the property and, yeah. 
He didn't know. He, he, he didn't know. Whether or not I have a company worth, I don't know, how much was it? 250 million? Something, something, something absurd. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I should check, really. really we should look at yeah. it. Just, just be sure. Better, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is funny when you work out their tax rate. So Sunak's tax rate is 22%. And Sunak's slightly compromised because Infosystems are still operating in, in Russia. In Russia, um, yeah. So he get, his wife gets dividends. And we don't know what he gets because he's got, I think it's got a, it's a blind trust. You can't see into the trust. So he gives vague instructions as to what the trust is to invest in. And it goes off. And that way he says, I don't know what the trust is doing. It's just making money for me. I've given it vague instructions so I can't be influenced. But that's so what's going on. I mean, that's so yeah, obviously designed to allow people to do dodgy stuff. Yeah, yeah. You'd think he could just sell it. What difference does it make? Because as soon as he finishes being prime minister, he can go and reinvest that money. So why is exactly it's like back a... to the hedge funds? Yeah, yeah. Why, yeah. Is he, why is he prime minister? That's my question. What's he <laughs> getting out of it? Because if he's not doing it for the money, it's like what one hundred and fifty grand a year. It's nothing importance yeah. to him. So why is he prime minister? Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after ten years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. Part of what, what his due is. It's not, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's any way to understand it as an ordinary person with an ordinary sized ego. Hmm. He's, he's, he's been living in a completely different world to us his entire life. And, you know, he thinks he'll be prime minister this year. <laughs> yeah, I can fix this. You know, he, he stood there alongside Johnson while Johnson was, you know, having drinks or whatever, you know, and... There you go. Yeah, Lying. different rules. Mm. Can it be solved unless Brexit's ended and we rejoin? I don't know if it can even be solved if we do that. I mean, this all did like the financial corruption started mm. before Brexit as well. We had, you know, the city of London running its own rules and. Well, that's it. They they do operate their own laws, don't they? Um, mm. Within obviously within reason, but uh, I, I remember John uh, John McDonnell, uh, the Labour ex Labour Chancellor talking about the fact he says we, if we get into Corbyn gets into power I'm going to sort of put all these new rules onto the city of London I thought that's very but I don't think you could I don't think he even could you know even if you're running the country which is a strange thing to say isn't it mm. I remember reading that they were having all sorts of really difficult meetings especially John, John McDonnell in order to ensure that you know doing that groundwork precisely what Liz Truss didn't do mm. with you know her mini budget doing the groundwork so as to ensure that there wouldn't be an immediate financial reaction uh, that would be disastrous for the economy on, you know, say them being elected or them revealing their budget or whatever. So I think, I mean, John McDonnell um, has brain power that Liz Truss has never thought she needed to dream of, has not realised she ought to be dreaming of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she just nods along, doesn't she? She's like... Um... Well, I, I don't know how to describe her. She's like a caricature of Thatcher, really, rather than anything else. She's extraordinary. She's like, she's just the, the level of lack of self-awareness to, to still be around. What are you yes. doing? She, she, <laughs> what are you doing, Liz? Go on. Yeah. She's getting paid huge amounts of money to deliver speeches. To, speeches about what? I don't know. How not, how not to run a country. How not to run an economy. Maybe that's it. This well, is what you should not do. <laughs> I am a cautionary tale on legs. <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely going around saying that she was wronged and she was right. Oh, she, yeah, no, no, no. She doesn't think she's done that. This is what, like, the level of empty-headedness is to, to, to not realise now that she, she thinks she was stitched up. She thinks she still belongs in, in leadership of the entire country in government. That's, she, I, I, it's the narcissistic behavior once again. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Everyone else is wrong, not me. I'm the one who's right. And I'm hoping wrong. that everybody else's memory is as short as hers appears to be, you know? Mm. <laughs> she's amazing. I mean, she's the gift that, you know, they, they said like um, when she was ahead in the Tory leadership election, there were all these Tory journalists saying, oh, you're underestimating Liz. Well, we were. We were. <laughs> Apart from the guys who did the lettuce. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
I mean, even they must have sat there and thought, well, it's a bit of a laugh, but we'll have a... And they're like, the lettuce one? How Fine did example know she was going to be that short of a prime she was, she was for the pan. She was for the pan at that point. Like, they maybe bought a second lettuce. I, w- I would hand them that. I don't care. But it was <laughs> when when everything went south in um, on that Friday. Was it a Friday that uh, the 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 budget mini budget was released and Quasi Quarting wasn't even in town. He was no, he was he he yeah. went he went to toast it, but then he went to the US. And yeah, Washington, on the Monday, wasn't it? Yeah, on the on the Monday, it was the um, the pensions that almost collapsed, uh, and he he didn't like. She told him to come come back home now, <laughs> um, but he wasn't willing to. He, then he eventually did, and then she fired him. So she didn't say, or she asked him to resign. I think it was not that she yeah asked him to resign. It was a very uh... but she then when she was asked, did you fire him? She wouldn't answer the question. So she, it was it was all really pathetic. I'm sorry to say we're out. Oh no. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to tune in next week for another exciting story from the files of Police Squad.